papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Welcome to the Media Project, an inside look at media coverage of current events. And I'm not Rex Smith. But I'm Mike Spain, the former associate <laughs> editor and colleague of Rex Smith. We both worked at the Albany Times Union together for many years. And I'm filling in as host this week because Rex couldn't be here. Joining us today is investigative journalist and UAlbany professor Rosemary Armeo. We have Judy Patrick, the former editor of the Daily Gazette and currently the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And we have the Daily Freeman Publisher Emeritus, Ira Fussfeld. Rex could have been here. He just chose not to. Well, I understand let's, let's that not he's, give him a pass. he's traveling, and I give him a pass for that because oh, everybody you, should travel. Well, he used to be your boss. You have to. You don't have to <laughs> give him a pass. Well, let's get right to it. There was an interesting uh, report this week from Fairness and Accuracy in Journalism, a group called FAIR. It's been around since the mid-'80s, and it takes a pretty critical look at what goes on in the media and doesn't hold any punches when it comes out to criticize. What's interesting, it's going after NPR this time, and specifically a segment on Morning Edition recently, which dealt with the issue of non-nuclear or radioactive materials that was used, is being used in munitions that the U.S. is providing to Ukraine in its war against Russia. And in this particular case, according to Fairness and Accuracy in Journalism, uh, the co-host of Morning Edition, Leela Fidel, used only one source for a three-and-a-half-minute piece about the use of this non-nuclear or light nuclear material. And she turned to a senior researcher fellow, research fellow at the University at Albany's Center for Policy Research. And this expert talked about it and said that it really wasn't a dangerous thing to use this kind of material. However, then fairness in journalism or fairness and accuracy in journalism goes on to dispute that. It quotes many other sources that said using the material that are in these weapons, which allow them to get extremely hot and take out the enemy, which is the purpose of weapons and war, folks. One of the problems is that it's still radioactive and it will stay radioactive for millions, maybe even billions of years, and it will contaminate that area for generations to come. And it is linked, this kind of radiation has been linked directly to rises in cancer when these weapons have been used elsewhere. So the problem here, according to the critic, is that she simply, the NPR reporter, simply did what a lot of reporters do. They look for an expert in something, they call them up, interview them, and that becomes the story. Is that really the way to do journalism? What do you think, Judy? No, it's not the way to do journalism. It's very sloppy. Where was the editor in this? Who looked this over? The Associated Press covered the same issue. 
hit a lot of sources on it. Is the issue that NPR is so rushed that it has to get something on the air as quickly as possible and just one source will do? You always have to look for as many sources as you can, especially with this. You could see from the get-go that this would be a potentially controversial issue, and they goofed on this one big time. Rosemary, is yeah. it two sources enough? No. In my beginning journalism class, freshman, so a whole lot less experience than NPR, you have three sources, and they can't be connected to each other. So this is an F, even in the beginning journalism class. Yeah, what we don't know, and it doesn't excuse the one-source story, is what the manpower situation was at NPR. Was this reporter facing five or six stories all at the same time, and he or she tried to cut corners on one? We don't know that, but the answer to whether one source is enough is clearly it's not. Right, but being busy or lack of enough power isn't an excuse. If the story's not ready to go, the story shouldn't have gone. We wouldn't move something to print because somebody's really rushed. And three and a half minutes, I think, is a long time in radio. It seems like they devoted a substantial amount of airtime to delving into this, and so it's not like this was brief. But don't you think that the instance that I suggest, and as you point out, it's not an excuse, but that happens a lot more than it used to, that stories of getting into print or on the air that are not sourced as well as they should be? Are you saying that's new or that has I'm been s- the way it is all I'm, along? I'm saying, it's, yeah. I'm saying it happened occasionally over the years. You could probably mm-hmm. find instances. But I am suggesting, and I don't know, obviously, in this specific case, that it is likely to happen more often if the workload on a particular reporter is such that they're not allowed to take as much time on an individual story. Well, what if you're talking about a particular subject and you have a really authoritative source, somebody who is unquestionably an expert in the field? Is it okay to just interview them and and attribute everything to them if it's about a particular topic? What do you think, Rosemary? I think no. Even in a profile of a person, you need to have other voices, a spouse, an ex-employee, an enemy, a friend, somebody who's going to either affirm or disagree with what the main person is saying. What aboutism is a term that's being used? So what about just calling up somebody who contradicts your source or has another opinion than your source? Is it fair to give that other person, that other voice, equal play? With no, Nobody's saying you have to give them equal play. Yeah. You, you don't even have to include them at all, but you got to talk to them. Number one ethical rule for journalists, I think, is you got to listen to everybody. Don't have to believe them don't have to print what they say, but you got to have talked to them. Would it have worked if the reporter in this particular case said, although our expert at the University of Albany portrays it this way, many disagree and regard this light uranium as being very dangerous? You know, just a sentence like that? or I mean, Would have been better than what they actually had, apparently, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is a problem when you're talking about resources. I agree, Ira, and you're going to see it more often as reporters... We don't know the details here, but as reporters are required to turn in more stories, deliver more pieces more often because there's fewer of them and there's still 24 hours a day to fill and newspapers to fill and airwaves to fill and podcasts to fill. So it is a perfect segue to the story that we read in the Columbia Journalism Review this week about the demise of small newspapers. Of course, everybody in this room talked about the Kansas-Marion County record and how a local police chief essentially got a warrant to go in and rift through the files at this newspaper in Marion County, Kansas. And it was coincidental, not at all, that the police chief was under investigation by the newspaper. And at least it has been a call for major organizations to 
come in, examine what happened, and underscore the First Amendment rights that this newspaper had and that they were violated in an atrocious way. And that was positive in a sense because it reminded people of how outrageous this was and people got a chance to speak up for it. But the reality is that, and Judy, you've talked about this a lot, being in your position with the New York Press Association, you can see that New York itself has many news deserts. What can be done? Well, so in one of the points that's being made now is that while the Marion paper has gotten a lot of positive coverage because people are, have found the conduct of the police department and the district attorney so outrageous, there's also this other discussion about what the role of a community newspaper should be. Should they be boosters of the community? I mean, how far does that go? Because there's some underlying dissent or dispute between some people in the community and that newspaper about how they were covering the community. I, I can remember being challenged if we covered too much crime, that it would portray the city where I was located as crime-ridden. And so you, you get that kind of blowback quite a bit. Is your job to portray the community in a positive light, or is your job to bring the community together? Is it all of those things, and how do you balance it? It's one of the things, Ira, you must have dealt with as a publisher, because you had to be out promoting your newspaper as a business venture. I mean, I think we've all experienced those phone calls where people say, why are you writing negatively about our community, about our high school football team? They're trying hard. And it clearly suggests that the people who are making those complaints don't understand the way we're supposed to work and the way journalism works. You can't blame them if they don't understand it. They're not journalists. But these things happen all the time. And again, let's talk about, i sound like a broken record, is there more of a temptation for smaller newspapers, which are disappearing at an alarming rate, is there more temptation for them to become boosters in their communities so that they can hopefully save their business? Oh, I think there is a temptation to do that. And I think there's always this underlying feeling that you're proud of the community you cover and you want to cover positive stories when they are available. But where does it tilt to ignoring the negative stories, the news, the important things that people should know about in that community that you're trying to, at the same time, present a positive image about? Mary Johnson was a art critic for the Baltimore Sun. I loved her. Mm -hmm. She was from the community and totally knew all the background of the arts that she was covering. And her view was always that I am going to criticize. I'm going to tell them what's wrong so that they will improve. So in her columns, you would see this general praise for the effort and the work and the things they did right, whether it was costuming or casting one role right. And then she would list all the things they could do to improve. And she was beloved, even by the people she was criticizing it. And in a way, that's what we miss in news. We don't have balance. In some communities that we cover as newspapers, big or small, it's always bad. It's murders, it's robberies, it's one problem after another. So of course we're not perceived as reliable there because people who live in a community know the good that happens even in bad places. I can remember covering a neighborhood in Virginia that was completely taken over by drug people. There were people on the streets selling and from the rest of the city, people drove in there to buy their drugs. But all along the way were houses filled with families who sent their kids to school who had to make peace with the drug dealers so that they would be safe. 
And that was a story. You you show the good and the bad, that things happen really kind of miraculously. It's a good story. Well. That's an was, amazing story. It was I mean, a great I mean, story to yeah. do. Yeah, I really yeah. loved working on that. It was years ago now. But that's what we miss most of the time is that we are so busy, and we should be writing about the bad things and drug deals, that we're missing that people still survive under these awful conditions. There's a tendency in some areas to do too much fluff, too many, you know, dog beauty contests that people will pick up the paper or turn to your website and say, oh, there's nothing there. I think you've got to have a good mix. You've got to have some meat with your product as well. You've got to continue to do those hard-hitting stories. The boosterism may be a factor at the business level of a newspaper, but at the journalism level of the newspaper, you have to set it aside. In the old days, our our papers had different sections, and there would be like the equivalent of neighborhood sections. And those were full of boosterism. There was full of little, tiny, tiny little news. But I never wanted to do that kind of reporting. Mm. I always wanted the hard-edge stuff. But I love that we had those neighborhood reporters who knew the whole character, knew all the players, knew all the small minutia thing, and they got tons of information. Well, let's turn to a related story, something that I think has already been happening over the years, but it looks like it's even happening more, and that is when the police or the public authorities want to prevent the reporters and the news organizations from finding the negative news. So they do everything they can and probably some things that are borderline illegal to block certain news from getting out there. As reporters, in the past, we all relied on the police scanners in the newsroom. I mean, they, they would just go off and it would alert us to what's going on. It would allow editors to make choices about sending reporters out on the beat to find out what was going on and send photographers to photograph it or videographers to capture it for the news. And more and more, they're not using these radio frequencies anymore. They're doing everything they can to keep the news organizations away from what's happening. In fact, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York City, he kept news media back around news events. If there was negative news events, he would keep people back. And it was all with the intention of not letting the news reporters basically get the full story that is negative so it would not reflect badly on the, uh, on the community. Is this something that you see more of where with fewer resources they're able to manipulate the news? Well, what we're hearing and what we're reading is that some of these police agencies relative to the scanners are now encrypting the messages that are going over the police scanners. So the average person, and there are a lot of people who have privately have their own police scanners, entertainment for them listening to what's going on. The thing that strikes me is a little bit odd, particularly at the community newspaper level, is that historically the police agencies wanted their activities in the newspapers because part of it was ego, but it was also to show the taxpayers that they were working. That's right. So the fact that they're now trying to block it is, in most cases, I think, against their best interest. You know, the scanner used to be a good source of information, especially for breaking news. I mean, I spent many, many years sitting next to a scanner listening to it and knew the codes. But in the last 10 years, it became, with the advent of the cell phone, it became less and less relevant. You wouldn't hear the information you needed to cover anything breaking over the scanner. I thought it was phased out for a long time. Um, I think the key to covering breaking news and getting good cop coverage is to have good sources, to have good reporters with good sources. I know that that's hard to get nowadays. We have fewer and fewer resources, but a good cop's reporter is worth his or her weight in gold. 
Never more important. You're, you're right. The scanners over the last few years, you could actually hear people saying, switch to your cell phone. So they, right, you, right. Knew that, you knew that they yeah. were having the private conversations. Yeah, and what happens, too, is the press people at the police departments and the law enforcement agencies now use Facebook. They now use X, formerly Twitter, and they put up what you want to hear when they want you to hear it which could often be after the fact, so you are unable to get and mobilize your limited resources to get out there and cover the news. I should say you're listening to The Media Project, a production of Northeast Public Radio, and we're here with Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armeo, and Ira Fussfeld, and I'm Mike Spain. Okay, it's been a few days for most people who will be listening to this since the Republican candidates debate that was held in California on Thursday. I just want to ask... Is that good journalism, that kind of an event? And how do you cover it without just becoming chaotic? Rosemary? Well, it did become chaotic, so I guess I guess that answers that part of the question. I think it's one of those events that have to be covered because of prominence. That's what freshman journalists call the, the driver of the news there. It, it, it was not well done. It's the role of the moderators to keep people talking one at a time and things flowing. It totally got out of their control. I will say that I loved the Univision. The, mm-hmm. The moderators from there asked questions that we don't normally hear asked of conservative Republicans, things about uh, gay rights and transgendered and, oh, income inequality. That was fantastic, but it was lost in the overall melee of that Mm. that event. And I also hate the audiences that we use. Newsom, the governor of California, is going to debate Ron DeSantis on a Hannity show. Right. Are they going to have an audience? I know that was a negotiating That was one of the conditions that Newsom said he won't do it without an audience. I think that was really smart. He wants a, you know, an empty studio. Right, right. That has the potential to be something I'd like to watch. Me too. Um, I thought the Republicans gathering in California was irrelevant. I mean, it went up against, I think, the season finale of America's Got Talent. You can bet which one got higher ratings. I I think... 95% 95% of Americans likely didn't tune into that. It's one of the reasons Fox had to reduce the cost of an ad on any of the program at all. This is because, you know, these gatherings, all the cross-talking was distracting. It was just a waste of time. It became the prominent news in the next day. Everyone covered this and who won, who lost, who gained, you know, and they cover it like, as someone mentioned, a boxing match. Was there a really relevant exchange of policy ideas? No, of course not, but the big issue was, well, who took the swipe at Trump? Where was Trump? Um, right. and it's just like playing into the Trump hand once so, again. In, in that regard, Ira, who won the debate? <laughs> well, I just thought it was two hours of my time that I'll never get back. So. But I, I tell you, from a journalism media standpoint, I believe that the television channels that air these debates get in bed with the organizers of the debate, in this case, the Republican Party. And they put their own anchors or reporters on the moderator's desk, and they almost always come out looking horrible. They lose control. It doesn't matter whether it's Fox or NBC. They can't control the debate. Now, if you want to have a debate, I don't believe that the network should be bidding against each other to get awarded a debate by party, number one. And number two, I think far more effective is if they get moderators who are not part of their crew and nor anybody else's. The one that comes to mind immediately for me is Jim Lehrer, who was retired but moderated a number of presidential debates, but he was respected as a neutral observer. He was not tied into the channels. 
and that puts some distance between the media organization and the event that they're allegedly covering. So I just think it's a bad thing. I, I don't have much use for these gang debates anyway. The When the president and Trump debate, I'll watch, and it'll be a lot more controlled effort, although that's... Oh, that's that's, that's, that's what yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, that's optimistic with Trump there. We, we shall see. There yeah. Currently, it hasn't been uh, determined whether there will ever be a debate between the two party nominees for 2024, but a lot remains to be yeah, seen. But Dana Perino and Stuart Varney, the the Fox representatives led that debate just didn't come out well, and they they didn't do themselves any favors. But as bad as they are, it's a requirement that journalists cover them and report what happened, and it's kind of a tough job. What, I guess. Do you, what do you think of how we should cover the potential impeachment hearings that are going on in Congress now against President Biden? Do they air them live? Do they add commentary? How do how should journalists be covering yeah, that? And President should we cover Biden. it gavel to gavel? Yeah. Uh, yes. We should we should be there gavel to gavel and reporters should but I mean should reporters. networks come in on it I mean it, oh you mean live coverage right. stop yeah. all pro no hell no we didn't do that with Trump well didn't I was just going to say didn't we do that with Trump I don't believe so not these See, I, I think the distinction the uh, if I'm right about that I think I am but the distinction would be the charges against Trump were less political in the view of most people whereas the charges against Biden are clearly a political uh, well even even many Republicans have said that there are no charges yet, but we have a lot of juicy information we need to track down, hoping to get charges. Well, have have we just, it's been reduced to sort of a perfunctory political brick-brac, and impeachment is just, you know, just that. We're just doing it because we can. It won't succeed. We know it won't succeed, and we'll never go anywhere. It's more like the Clinton uh, impeachment, Mm. which was on a charge that many people felt did not rise to the level of constitutional impeachment. But it did enable a lot of things to be said about Clinton that really Which is why we're having it right now. So, I I mean, we, we have the model to how to cover this with Jim Comer from Kentucky. It's been one repeated supposed scandal after another. Nothing has come out of it, and the coverage has shown that, that the charge are nothing but smoke and mirrors. There's no real evidence. Nothing has come out of any of those weaponization of government hearings. With that, we should really turn to what has been the absolutely biggest story this past week, (laughs) and that is Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was the dress code in the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) Equally momentous. That that was a big story, I agree. But I don't know. When you're talking about Swifties and NFL fans kind of (laughs) converging, that is major stuff. And is it really appropriate to devote? I mean, it is everywhere. Everywhere you turn, they have these clips of, you know, Taylor Swift jumping up and down with Travis Kelsey's uh, mother in the, you know, as fans at one of the football games. And, and now you see these completely divergent cultures, the fans of Taylor Swift and the NFL people. So is it is it too much? And, and as I say that, the, the big question is, was it appropriate for Gannett to basically hire a Swift reporter? There's a reporter dedicated yeah, to telling the story of Taylor Yeah, We have talked about that, yeah. yes. We approved it. We, we yeah, we gave it, high, a good we idea. gave it good marks. And this proves why. I mean, there's look at the money <laughs> and influence that this couple represents. 
I mean, Taylor Swift is a story, uh, an ongoing story, and one of the few that actually attracts the attention of the Gen Z people that I'm seeing in college now. To support that position, I mean, she's being attacked by right-wing media. It's crazy. Right. Uh, she's yeah. political, well, he, yeah, We should say that Travis Kelsey is a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, and he did do a public service announcement where he uh, encouraged people on behalf of the Centers for Disease Control to get a booster shot because uh, a COVID booster shot is one of the best ways to protect yourself and others against a spread of COVID-19. And now people in the right wing are accusing uh, him of caving in and being told what to do by Taylor Swift, and Taylor <laughs> Swift has been attacked. They say he appeared in a Bud Light commercial, which has been criticized also. You know, uh, you know, the right wing has criticized Bud Light because they had a transgender person promote Bud Light, and they paid dearly for that because it cost them a lot of sales. Now, Taylor Swift had the audacity to encourage people to register to vote, and, yes. and she has 270... Obviously a communist. <laughs> 273 million million followers on Instagram. The football player, what's his name? Oh, <laughs> right. It doesn't really matter, I guess. Travis he has, Kelsey. He has like two million followers, but pe and, and she's worth probably a billion dollars from this Eras tour. Uh, they calling her a gold digger. You know, it's <laughs> like she 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 is the power in that relationship. She is the gold to be dug. Yeah. This story has history. You have Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. You have Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez, and oh, I could. God, that's I, true. If I thought more, I'd come up with some more. But but it's something that people are interested in. It's clearly fluff to everybody except the participants, and yeah. it's worth being in on TV, and it's worth being in newspapers. Where I question it is, as Mike asked, is it too much? How is it being covered? Is it on the front page of the newspaper? Is it taking up more than two minutes on the nightly news? Yes, there, the potential is for it to be too much, but it's a story that is as old as the newspaper business. Well, I mean, Rosemary, you know, I think you're you're correct. It, it she has enormous influence. Yep. And she's uh, a phenomenon. As, as we've pointed out just by urging her own followers to register to vote. The website she cited got immediately bombed with people uh, going to that site to do exactly what she asked. So she does have enormous the power. The number of, of Travis's followers <laughs> zoomed up when he hooked up with her. So yeah, she does have influence. And I, I, I disagree that it's all fluff. Maybe Marilyn and DiMaggio, that was entertainment and sports. It's different now. It's business. It's it's politics. The Her whole voting, her whole uh, pro-democratic stand has made a difference in politics. So the influence is much more now than when DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe got Yeah, I, by fluff I mean it, what you just said there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about the Cardassians, and they're very silly, but geez, I mean, they're billionaires. Billionaires, millionaires at least. Uh, Kylie is uh, is it's one of the richest women. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's getting there, and and the way they run businesses, shapewear from Kim Kardashian is awesome. They are a huge influence on fashion, on social mores. They're interracial. That's enormous right now in a country that's ripped with racism. I think the Kardashians and the Taylor Swift stories are compelling. Well, that's all the time we have wow. this week. Thank no. you no, this to show Rosemary Arneo, Judy Patrick, and Ira Fussfeld. And thanks also to our producer, David Gustina. I'm Mike Whatever. Sp Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mike Spain. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on The Media Project. That's a thrill all together fits the bill. Oh, newspapermen are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the 
the Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union Associate Editor Mike Spain, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman, and Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcasts.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>